Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm Dan Van. With me today is indie author Justin Mason. Today, we're going to go over Chapter 7 of The Sword of Bedwear, The Diamond Gate Fairy. Justin, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. You know, uh, first of all, great to be back for another episode, Dan. I'm loving being a part of this Likewise. podcast. I've just been listening to, uh, just been kind of listening to it on my free time. It sounds What are you listening so... to it on? I'm listening to it on Spotify. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds fantastic, dude. It flows so well. The conversation is it's just fantastic, and I love the way it sounds. I really do. Yeah, we have good rapport with each other, I think. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I'm I'm really having a great time with it, man. In real life, we Gotta hate each it. other. You know, it's yeah, like can't stand him. Ethan, uh, you know, Ethan, Ethan Garris. Garris. You know Ethan what I mean? Garris, yeah. Got to give a quick shout out to uh, my fantasy novel, The Trinity of Heroes, available on Amazon, and Tokyo Lightning, my anime style light novel also available on amazon so be sure you guys check this out dan chapter seven let's do it let's hit it summary the chapter starts out after <laughs> luthien and oliver left the skirmish and the and the robbery site after getting more than a mile away oliver uh slows his pony down threadbare to a trot and begins to properly introduce himself he explains that he has been a highwayman for a while and he has started um, or when he started, he wasn't taken seriously by the local mercenaries. So he had to use his rapier much more to make a point, as well, he says. Well, let's get something straight. He is Oliver de Boros. Oliver de Boros. Highwayman. And he says it every <clears throat> chance he gets. Yep. He reminds He's you. a highway halfling. Every moment he gets. He, yeah, he was a highway halfling, and people didn't take him seriously, so now he's just straight up highway man. <laughs> As uh, as he spoke to Luthien, he snapped <clears throat> the rapier out of the loop of his baldric. A baldric. He's actually curious as to what that was. Yeah, a baldric is a belt worn over one shoulder that is typically used to carry a weapon or other implement such as a bugle or a drum. The word may mm. also refer to as a belt in general. Nice. So that's um, a baldric. Oh, it's just that thing that people hold their shoulders on, you know, that go across their chest. Nice. I didn't know nice. that. Anyway, he snapped uh, he snapped his rapier out of the loop of his baldric ball, uh, just to kind of prove his point, and Oliver cuts Luthien off whenever he tries to speak during this whole introduction. Luthien keeps yes. on going, well, I'm Luthien. And then he's like, but furthermore, I have to right. explain. This was such great writing. Uh, it, it, it establishes Oliver's character even more, and it I, – I don't know how much I can state. This was, this was the kind of back-and-forth banter – that I just adore in books. Yeah, it was it was cool. Oliver every, Oliver cuts off Luthien whenever he tries to speak, controlling the conversation as he explains that his pony is smarter than most humans, which we kind of gathered from the last uh, from the last episode. Well, Oliver it's a pony go- that thinks it's a warhorse. Yeah, he thinks he's a freaking warhorse, man. <laughs> Oliver goes on to discuss the battle, explaining that this was not the first time he had robbed that very same merchant putting the pieces together that the reason why they were there were so many Cyclopeans was because it was a trap. So it verified what we thought. He concluded that uh, he has probably been painting a big target on himself as of late. So he's kind of giving the impression that eh, maybe he should lay low for a little bit. So Oliver then allows Luthien to introduce himself. And at the mention of the name Bedwear, Oliver remarks, this name is not unknown to me. 
when Luthien reveals that Garrus is indeed his father, the halfling nearly chokes in surprise that Luthien, veritable prince of Dunvarna, would be out on the road for sport. And don't they have like a bit of a spat back and forth? Yeah, yeah. So and... he he's once he realizes that Garrus is his dad, he kind of flips on him. And it and so then we learn through Oliver's point of view more about Gascony. In Gascony, where Oliver had spent most of his life, it was not uncommon for the rowdy children of nobles to get into all sorts of trouble, including ambushing merchants on the road, knowing that their family connections would keep them free. Draw your sword! Interesting. Draw your sword, you silly little boy! The halfling <laughs> cried out and whipped his rapier uh, rapier and his man gauche. I, so uh, I so much do not approve! And he gets mad. Oliver then engages with his rapier, but skilled Luthien defeats every move. He's like, what? Dude, hold on. Hold on. Wait. Let me explain. So it's, is the reasoning behind this that Oliver initially thinks that Luthien is just doing it for shits and giggles? Yes, shits and while, gigs. While Oliver does it basically to survive. Correct. Yeah. And so we're like, we're learning two things there. We're learning a little bit more about the Gaskin culture because, you, you, I mean, Aubrey and his boy uh, Beaumont or whatever – they were cruising the aisles, but they weren't, like, robbing people. You know what I mean? Yeah, Whereas yeah. in Gascony, I think it's just a little bit more, hmm, I don't know. Free plunder. Yeah, freewheeling a, a little <laughs> bit. So Oliver pisses Luthien off by saying that his actions are that of a spoiled lordling. Mm. Luthien sets, himself, sets him straight about his intentions. You are wrong, Luthien answers sternly. You could find fault with Garrus Bedwyr. That I do not doubt. He does not follow his heart if that course would go against the edicts of King Greensparrow. Ooh. Sharp dig against Garrus there. Mm-hmm. Or that of Duke Montfort or any of the Duke's many emissaries. But on pain of death, never again speak of Garrus as a tyrant. What's up? Yeah. Justin. Um, front of the class. I think I... <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I think this really establishes how Luthien, while Luthien does have some maybe deep-seated issues with his father, especially with everything that's happened with Garth Rogar and some of the other things that are going on, I think this also establishes Luthien's sense of responsibility to his family to still be willing to stand up for his father. Yeah, it's cool. And say, hey, say, hey he might not be perfect, but he's not a tyrant. Back off. Exactly. We're not some average Gaskin nobles, brah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We ain't here to pillage and plunder and steal your women. You know what I'm saying? So after some introspection, which Oliver waits patiently for, Luthien is introspecting. Luthien explains that he has fled his house and admits that he is as much of an outlaw as Oliver himself. Oliver accepts Luthien's explanation and decides it would be advantageous and even profitable for the two to team up as fellow outlaws. They didn't make it to Diamond Gate ferry that day and decided to camp until morning because Luthien explained how the ferries didn't run at night due to the island spotters not being able to spot any of the dorsal whales that had come up through the channel. That night, Luthien still couldn't believe the events that had transpired over the last couple of days. His thoughts swirling with Garth Rogar, his brother Ethan, and now the attack on the merchant wagon. The world, as it turned out, was not as he had been brought up to expect it to be. I think you should know that uh, Luthien is not a thief. He's not a thief, and that's disgusting. How how could you ever think that Luthien could ever be a thief? Do you know who I am? So this is when this is when Luthien kind of gets a taste of the real world. And mm-hmm. he's so when he says the world as it turned out was not as he had been brought up. 
to expect it to be. It reminds me of, um, as the New York Yankee player Oscar Gamble once said, they don't think it be like it is, but it do. It basically means, it basically is. I'm triggered. <laughs> roses are red, violets are blue. They don't think it be like it is, but it do. And it's just basically saying real life is a little different if you've been sheltered. And once you hit that, yes. you, it can send you uh, spiraling. Well, I think sometimes, you know, even in the real world, we have our impressions of things and our thoughts on things. And sometimes we experience things that make us say, oh, I guess I really didn't know as much about that as I thought I did. Yeah. So the next day, it was gray and wet, like in typical Dunvarney. Yeah, nothing's different. <laughs> yeah. But the two companions made good time, getting to the ferry by mid-morning. From the top of a rocky bluff, they had a good view of the ferry and the mainland of Eriador across the narrow channel. And here's the description. Two flat open barges sat at the end of long wooden wharves, whose supporting beams were as thick as ancient oaks. Off to the side loomed the remains yeah. loomed the remains of older wharves, equally well constructed, their demise a testament to the power of the sea. So let's talk about that. I think well, this is a really cool setup because I could actually see them coming down to this place, right? Coming down from the tops, just kind of like riding their horses down. Yep. And I can actually see this whole setup. This entire com this entire scene that's coming up right now, I would say, other than the Luthien Garthogar fight, which I thought was genius, this entire scene coming up right here is probably my favorite part of the book. Yeah, and I and so far, so far, not coming from like a seafaring background, I needed to know what wharves was because in the book it's wharves W H A R V E S, and I was like, what the heck? Aren't they, aren't they just like ports? It's kind of like docks. Basically, they're just yeah. uh, docks, and then right. there's usually like a a building connected to the dock. Yeah. So like, um, you'll see old pictures of like your town where it's like we were we used to be a lum lumber town and we would send logs down the river and you can see pictures of yeah. like logs rolled up right next to docks and stuff like that and a barge is just a mm -hmm. flat um transport boat that you can just pile stuff on so nice. for those of you who aren't <laughs> in with the the nautical if you're not a seafaring nautical expert <laughs> we can help we you out Dan Dan here to explain it to us <laughs> So, uh, Luthien pointed out that the northern barge looked like it was going to be shut down, and they explained that the, the they explained the whole system of the, of the ferry system how they always they, there's like two barges running, but one of them is always like out of commission just in case you know they got to change the lines or something like that or a, a shark whale yeah could be the the remaining one was about to disembark. They started toward the ferry on their mounts, but Oliver slowed them down, warning Luthien of a high potential for an ambush for them at the wharf. Upon closer inspection of the wharf, Luthien saw about 20 people. It says in the book a score. A score is 20, uh, which included... Damn, dude. What? Yeah, that's 20... Damn, that's a lot of... That's a lot. Well, you know, for a ferry, it makes sense. If you're going to and from Damn. Ariador... you know, you got to have, you know, you got to have a place for travelers to be able to cross. And this seems like it's it. You know, across the channel. Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be like 20 people there. You know, it's a Tuesday. This is like, um, I imagine this as being like Egg Harbor up in Door County. Uh, it's With the ferry going to Washington Island. Okay, Except yeah. It's not a bar. Yeah, it's kind of, it's it's kind of like that. Yes, it is kind of like that in, in D.C. Or I imagine something along the lines of like in Green Bay, you know, over by Louis Frigo, <laughs> the bridge, yeah. the Blue Bridge. 
yeah. in the channel a little bit. You see all those buildings and stuff that lead right up to the um, the banks. That's kind of what I imagine, yeah. just going from one side to the other. It's deep enough water where you're not going to be able to go by yourself with your horse. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so they saw about 20 people, which included travelers and merchants, and he only spotted two Cyclopean guards, which was actually uncommon. Even though Cyclopeans are allowed free roam because of uh, Green, Green Sparrow. Sparrow's edicts, uh, it is a little unusual to see them like traveling outside of their Just designated out. areas. So when they were spotted, everyone seemed calm. But Oliver's eyes darted around under the brim of his hat, searching for the trap. The, disem- uh, the disembarking horn from the ferry blew. Like, everybody back away, you know. And Luthien was antsy. He wanted to get on that thing. But Oliver held him back and held him in check, waiting until the last moment to move to the ferry. As they drew closer, in a calm, nonchalant manner, Luthien's adrenaline was starting to pump in the same way that it did when he stepped into the arena. He's like, oh, gosh, here we go. Well, think of it like this. You're with your bud. You're getting ready to go get on a bus or do something. But all of a sudden, your buddy grabs you and you say, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. These these two guys right here, they look like they're going to jump us. And you just know there's a part of you that's like, no, come, come on. on, man. But then you start to then you start to look and you're like, uh, this shit, does look fishy. We're going to fight. <laughs> After the next barge departed uh, was called out, Oliver exclaimed, oh, so then so then they, they meet up with this dude, this this dock hand. And mm-hmm. he says, oh, the next the next barge shall be going out. Just afternoon, the hour afternoon. And and then Oliver goes, too long, and suddenly yeah. bursts. Yeah. Yep, bursts past the people on the dock. Oh, uh, I don't I didn't mention this, but when they were like uh doing their little like casing the place when they were scouting out the area, they noticed that there were a bunch of uh X marked barrels. Yep, with holes with holes in casks. So it the it, that was like how Oliver was like describing to Luthien, like you gotta learn to look for these things. And so his perceptions and yeah. So his by him pointing that out, he's like, "Hey, if when we go, kick a couple of those barrels into the water." Yeah. Um. And Luthien's like, "Okay, dude. It was too long to way. wait for the next ferry." Oliver burst past the people on the dock with Threadbare leaping off the wharf onto the ferry, but not before stopping Threadbare to kick some barrels off the edge of the dock. Luthien was quickly behind him with River Dancer. As the two Cyclopeans shouted and the lids off all the X-marked barrels started popping off, revealing the trap that Oliver had warned Luthien about. Now on the barge, Luthien and Oliver began fighting the Cyclope. Uh, Luthien and Oliver began fighting the Cyclopeans that were on the boat with them. Oliver has a Zoro moment by whipping his rapier around on the first attacker's chest, leaving the Cyclopean unharmed, but with a fine cursive letter O on his chest. How do you make a fine cursive letter O? It would be. With a little, it'd be the big all with a little curly cue up top. Yeah, so he has his little Zoro moment, confirming yes, Bob likes him some Zoro. Confirmed. Yeah, I think he actually just watched the mask of Zoro yeah. before he wrote this book. Antonio Banderas as He's a big Catherine Zeta Jones. Think fan about it, dude. In the beginning of this, you said all you could think of was Puss in Boots, right? Yep. Antonio yep. Banderas, the voice actor of Puss from the Shrek movies, also played. The Mask of Zorro, Zorro in the Mask of Zorro, circa 1997. Okay, the connections here. Get your tinfoil hats on, people. Quickly dispatching no, the attackers and ru- and ridding the barge of any other threats, the Cyclopeans still on the wharf took up spears and began chucking them their way as they contacted the captain to get the ferry going. And there's a little funny moment where 
uh, Luvian's like, dude, they got uh, they got spears. And Oliver's like, come on. They're Cyclopeans. Look at their eyes. There's no way they're going to hit us. And then it almost goes it goes right between his legs. And he's like, I could be wrong. But doesn't wait. Doesn't Luthien say you? Oh, yes. Luthien uh, mimics his accent. They're starting to become. Yeah. And goes, you could be wrong. (laughs) And Oliver's like, (laughs) Oliver's like, I do not sound like that. I'm going to kill you while you sleep. Okay, so now we're on the channel. Okay. If you're listening to the audiobook, it's 20 minutes up into this point. When you get to the actual wow. into the ferry and into the ferry battle, uh, it's 20 more minutes. It didn't take here's the thing, it didn't take me 20 minutes to read this previous part, which is weird because usually I'm a slow reader. Well, yeah, it did kind of fly. It it is very snappy so to the point. Fly. But yeah, so it's long. We're not gonna go as in depth as they do in the the book. So I'm going to just summarize it this way. Then begins a wonderful battle on the channel that involves a very that involves very dramatic events between the Cyclopeans that start after them on the remaining barge. So the barge that's supposed to be docked, that's not supposed to be used, they take it over, the Cyclopeans on the wharf, and then um, they start to use it to start chasing them down. Do we know at this point if the Cyclopeans are servants of Green Sparrow or if they're just like thieves and marauders? Because... It just feels like they were not going to give up through this whole part. You know, that's this whole part felt really like they are relentless. Spears, barge, whale, like they just keep coming at them. It's a really good point because I'm really not sure who they're from. Are they from like the Merchants Guild? Like, are they the hired mercenaries of the mercenaries of the merchants, or are they like part of Green Sparrow's army for like? Isle Bedwigin or something like that, or like, or are they just cyclopians. I mean, we do the southern lands. We do kind of have. Well, why would they have set up an ambush? So it must be they must have been hired by like the merchants of Montfort or wherever they're from, wherever that merchant it was from, because one of them did get away. Remember, that was my question. Do you think this was premeditated? It was premeditated after the one got away and said, yeah, I was attacked. For Luthien and Oliver. Or could this have been for anybody? For Luthien and Oliver. Because why would they? Okay. Why would stinking Cyclopeans <clears throat> hang out in wine casks all day? With a bunch of smeller barnyard animals anyway. Bunch of, yeah, exactly. Oof. Those fantasy rips, dude. Back end of a cat. So at one point, the barges, the main barge that Luthien and uh, Oliver are on, the barge's guide rope on the pulley gets disconnected and Luthien manages to get it going again before the barge could slip out of control into the channel and into the dorsal sea. Dorsal whales show up and it's horrifying. Well, at least one does. Yeah, this was, this was really cool because the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, there's going to be a whale. There has to be a whale. They had spotted one before they had left. Yeah, he knew it was going to happen. Like as they were going, as Luthien and Oliver were like, hey, Captain, can we uh, get going? He's like, yeah, we can get going, but we're going to need to stop. And they're like, what do you mean? And he's like, "Um, dorsal whales, there was a warning for it. I saw a yellow flag on the other side of the channel. That means that we have to stop at Diamond Gate and just wait. Yeah, didn't they? Didn't he initially say that? And then Luthien and um, Oliver are like, we're taking this barge and we're going. Yeah. He, yeah, Luthien looks back at the other barge with the Cyclopeans on it, looks at the captain and goes, we got to go. We got to go, bro. And the, the captain kind of goes, we'll go to Diamond Gate, and then we'll decide once we're there. 
So uh, in the middle, and we'll get into uh, in more depth of the geography of that channel, but in the middle of the channel, in, directly in the middle between the two uh, islands, Eriador and Dunvarna, there is a diamond-shaped island of black rock, which is why it's called Diamond Gate, where they also have little house where the fairies can like go to. Rest. So when they like get there, when they get there, they get all the people that are on the ferry off and onto Diamond Gate. And then Luthien hands the captain a big wad of cash. In his world, it was a big sack of coins jingle jangling from their fresh robbery. So it's like, hey, he never really had the money anyway. And he's like, Captain, like, hey, time to I disembark, my man. I need, I need this. I need this barge. Help me get out of here. Yeah, my and way. Captain was like, no, we can't go. Oh, looks pretty glistening in there. Good. Aren't you guys just going on your own? Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, you bought the barge, basically. Um, yeah, you can just have it. Whatever. So the chapter ends with the barge outrunning a dorsal whale in just in the nick of time. And they're like, and Bob's like calling it out like that one play where um, I forget who it was from the Green Bay Packers was going all the way into the into the touchdown. He's at the 50. He's at the 40. He's at the 30. He could go all the way. You know what I mean? And he was yes. calling it out in the book like that. He's like 70 feet away. 20 meters. Yeah. yeah. 30 feet away. 10 feet away. So one thing I like about this part is, sure, we have the cool chase scene. Cyclopians are after him. Big whale thing, right? Whatever. And all this stuff's going on. And Luthien, like, is shouting back, cut the rope. Cut the rope. So when they cut the rope, the whale, like, surfaces and comes at the barge and the actual wave from the whale pushes the barge up onto the rocks onto the shore. I thought that was so cool. Well, okay, so does that happen in yes. this chapter? Because how the chapter yes. ends, I mean, maybe in the, ver- I don't know, maybe I'm reading a different version from you, but basically at the very end, they just get out of the range of the dorsal whale because it starts to get really shallow or kind of shallow. So wait, wait, wait. Do they end up on the shore or not? We don't know because oh, because yeah, at the very right end they um they get past the the dorsal whale just in the nick of time, but at very fast speeds. Unfortunately, coming up to a sheer cliff of jagged rock. Tune in next time to find out if our heroes survive. Damn it! Okay, but so at least the whale was coming at him. Oh, basically. for sure, the whale was coming at him. The whale. Got distracted midway. It was it was really. I mean, we didn't go really into how the whale like showed up and stuff, but the whale does show up, and they end up cutting the rope to get out of the way of the whale. And since they're not like moving and actively churning the water, the whale gets distracted by the um, cyclopians who which panic panicked, and they threw in one of the other cyclopians as like fodder. But the, the, yeah. but then Bob writes in there something like, but the Cyclopians did not know the greedy nature of the dorsal whale. And it's like. And they just start knocking yep. them off and eating them all. It was Okay, great. so that's chapter seven, guys. We don't know if they're going to survive or not. They're coming up to a sheer cliff of jagged rock. Spoiler alert, they survived. <laughs> yeah, chapter seven <laughs> ends, and then the rest of the book is just like, hope you enjoyed it. They're dead. <laughs> so we got some points to – what did you – first of all, what did you think about this chapter? Like I said, this was my favorite chapter so far outside of the fight with Garth Rogar. This This chapter was very intense, 
and it brought up things that the story had been teasing at different points, like the dorsal whales, that I wanted to see them go up against. I love this chapter. I really like the interplay between Luthien and Oliver, not only during combat and during, like, iffy, scary, creepy, like, we could die scenes, but also during their fun banter back and forth. I love that. Yeah, with, like, I'm always interested... Uh, interested in the like flora and fauna of environments and like learning more yes. about the world and the chance like the we were yes and we were we were going to get the chance to meet a dorsal whale i'm like how the heck can you do that if they're from the dorsal sea you're going onto a ferry that's in in a small channel how's that going to happen well then they establish that there's like whale spotters and that you know if the whales crop up then the ferry's got to stop it's like okay so we might see something and of course Bob delivers, gives us a Dorsey and <laughs> and explains them in such a way that it's just it's the the details that occur in this chapter were also kind of confusing. I, I actually got a little confused when they were explaining the fairy system. <laughs> I, I was just kind of no, I was I had to reread it three times to be like, OK, there's a pulley. There's a there's a, we'll get into that anyway. Some points to bring up. I enjoyed it, too. Uh, here's my first point. It's called Oliver's acceptance. Um, Oliver has some code of honor, even though he is a thief. And upon hearing that Luthien is nobility, he immediately attacks verbally and physically, assuming that Luthien is just like the rest. After Luthien explains himself, though, Oliver not only understands, but accepts his explanation and decides to team up. This gives us an insight into Oliver's character, that even though he stereotyped Luthien, he is able to step back and critically think about him as an individual as well. Although prideful, he does not uh, he he doesn't uh, let that blind him from a potential from a potential ally or friend. Oliver strikes me as a guy who has um, had his own failings in life. Bob never really goes into Oliver's past, but through his introduction of himself, we learn that he has been the victim of stereotyping when he was not given a chance to be respected for who he was as an individual when he first introduced himself as a highway halfling halfling. What I like about that is basically it's showing Oliver as he's got his preconceived notions. He's got his, um, I don't know, what do you call it when you when you have like, yeah, stereotypes. He's got those stereotypical thoughts in his head where he's like, no, I know you. You're a prince. You're rich. You're rich. You're rich. You're, You've you're never struggled. Yeah. You know, everything's been handed to you. You know what? Get out of here or I'm going to cut your head off, you know. But when Luthien describes what basically he went through and was like, you know what? I'm as much of an outlaw as you. I've walked away from my family and this is where I'm at now. He, Oliver could have easily just said, nope, whoosh, you know, but instead of doing that, he's like, you know what? Okay. We'll see how this goes, man. You know, you did good in the fight. So in his mind, he's internally doing all the mechanisms. He's like, you know what? Yeah. Let's team up for a little bit and see how this goes, giving him a chance. And I really like that because he explains in his introduction that he was not given a chance when he first introduced himself to the world, even though it was as a thief, people just kind of thought he was just a joke. He's super skilled, super. Uh, he's got super high perception, great agility, awesome with the sword, but everyone just saw him as his height, not as him as Oliver D. Burr Alls. You know what I'm saying? Highway halfling. What do you think about Oliver? Do you think he's a nice guy? I'm 50-50 on him. Oliver, I think, has his motives. And uh, I'm, I I like Luthien and him working together, but I still think at the end of the day that Oliver has to prove his qualities. 
not just talk. And he is a lot of talk, but he does back it up pretty good. Yes, he does. Uh, here's my next point to bring up. Luthien's first taste of real life. At camp on the night after the attack on the merchant wagon, Luthien's mind is spinning with the thoughts of all the events that had transpired in the past few days. His worldview, as he was brought up to know it, has been demystified, and this paralyzes him. He doesn't know how to react, so he just goes uh, he just goes off heart and instinct for the time being, allowing himself more time to digest everything before he makes any decisions on future actions. This happens to a lot of people around his age in the real world. So I wanted to bring this up about his first, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, his first taste of... What is he, 17? No, he's 20. 18? He 20. 20. Okay. So that's about, you know, uh, you know, your first couple of years into college, if you go to college or yeah. um, first yeah. couple of years in the workforce at, or trade schools. Yeah. Um, it's very, uh, it hits you hard. It hits you you're not ready hard. It. it hit me hard when I was that age. And um, yeah. I couldn't handle it either. But in this situation, how Luthien handles it is, and this has happened multiple times in the past couple chapters where he thinks about what's gone on and he just doesn't react. Or he his reaction is inaction, where he goes, you, and that's okay. he's like, I just need to keep thinking about this and I don't know what to think. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this makes me, you know? Yeah. And he's struggling with that really hard. So for the time being... He is just running off of heart and um, instinct. And that's what really is drawing me to his character is that he's a well, for right now it, is that he is basically like a, a hero with a lot of heart. And we kind of talked about that in the beginning. It's really hard to write those characters that it seems believable. But in this yeah. situation, because he's still grieving, because he's so, so confused, his first time in the real world, it's not what he thought it was. He's a thief now. You know, like he is. Out of his mind. Luthien is incredibly talented. Yeah. In the arena. Correct. Yes. And what else is he talented at? He doesn't know yet. And that so that's my that point, happens right? to a lot of kids. It's like you got these kids they come out of school and they have no idea how to handle what they're experiencing, and they're maybe only good at a couple of things. Sometimes I think they just they go off the deep end. Yeah, you know, but it's it's with Luthien, right? He has so much talent. You think, well, he can beat anybody. He could be Green Sparrow. He could beat Ethan. He could beat Garrus. Like he could beat Garth, the Cyclopean, whatever. But then it's like, okay, but what if you're not fighting? Like, how are you going to survive? Like, you know, I'm not a thief. You are now. Yeah, you kind of just helped me. He. He's dedicated his life to something that is, you know, in its own way valiant. You know, he wanted to become like the best arena guy ever. And he probably could have been mm-hmm. a really cool swords master or a weapon master where he could train uh, the young Dunvarnins about, uh, you know, fighting techniques and stuff like that. But his life has completely changed. It's like the kid that, you know, they, they were in like. I don't know, football or cross country or whatever, all through high school, very popular. And then they go to a school where nobody knows them and he's not part of any sports and he's completely lost. He was really good at something when he was young and now it's just based off of his personality and he doesn't even really have one that he knows. Or know what a personality is. I really like that uh, Bob does a good job. It could be a very depressing realization. And Bob does a good job of humanizing yeah. Luthien as opposed to just having him be like some unstoppable fighting machine. I mean, we still get that. Luthien he's still actually, a good fighter. Yeah, yeah, we do get that. But he still struggles yes. with 
real struggles that real people can struggle with. That's why I think this book is so relatable, even though it's a fantasy book. Yeah, it's it's very good. Okay, so the next portion that I wanted to bring up was the dwarven engineering that was mentioned. The fairy pulley system at Diamond Gate in particular. This was the, the passage that really confused me and threw me for a loop. So I wanted to go over it because if you only read it once, good for you. You can just move on. It doesn't really matter. But it's cool to know how in-depth these systems can get. Okay. The barges, including the two uh, now moored across the channel, had originally been designed and built by the dwarves of the Iron Cross more than 300 years ago and had been meticulously maintained and replaced when the rocks or the currents or the dorsal whale took one by the islanders ever since. Their design was simple and effective. An open, flat landing for cargo and travelers, the barge itself, anchored at each corner by thick beams that arched up to the central point 10 feet above the center landing. So, boom, you got a little like TP thing going on from either side of the barge, coming up to the middle, 10 feet above your head. Here, the beams connected to a long metal tube. So then you got a long tube that goes across the whole barge, the lengthwise of the barge that these crossing support beams are connecting into. So you got a, a metal tube. And through this ran the thick rope that guide the ferry back and forth. So there's a rope that goes in between that tube, and that's what pulls it back and forth. A large gear showed on each side of the tube as its notches reaching in through the slits of the tube's side. A crank on the deck turned a series of gears leading to these two, which in turn caught the knots in the rope and pulled the ferry along uh, when the cord was taut. The beauty of the system was that because of the marvelous dwarven gearing, a single strong man could pull the entire ferry, even if it was heavily laden. So this was the part that I had to read three times, and I just kept on getting confused, but basically... It's a rope with a bunch of knots, and they're, what, what I like about this, the reason why I bring it up, is because this is dwarven engineering. It's a, a, For an engineer who probably read this, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. He's got fulcrums, all, it's all great. But for the average reader, it was like a little much, but it goes into more of the world. Dwarves are very present in this world, even though you, I haven't seen one ever since they were enslaved, you know what I mean, by... That's what I was going to say. I was going to say, haven't they been enslaved by Green Sparrow? Mm -hmm. So you got to think maybe he's got them working on something or building They're probably always working or mining or something, but seeing their little engineering throughout the land is really cool because it's like, yes. yeah, we, we haven't seen... I don't think we've seen any elves yet. I don't think we've seen the dwarves yet, but we're already seeing th their impact on the world itself. The fact that this ferry system was built 300 years ago and is still run by the locals is pretty sweet. Well, not only is it a testament to the quality of the dwarven engineering, but it's also a testament to the locals' ability to continue to maintain and do upkeep on the system. Otherwise, it would just go to hell. Yeah, and that they're they're willing to, even though Green Sparrow has enslaved these people, to use their technology as if it's like, you know what, you can enslave them, I guess. We don't necessarily agree with that, but... Man, this is what is our lifeblood right now. Next thing, Oliver's tactics. Again, I just got to get into Oliver. While waiting for the ferry to disembark, pointing out to Luthien the barrels all along the wharf, noting that they had X's on them 
and noticing that the two Cyclopeans were that if the two Cyclopeans that were there were simply travelers, why wouldn't they have already been on the barge that had just left? So I just really like how tactful That's what I'm wondering. or how full of tactics Oliver is where he's able to look at a situation, you know, even though he's kind of always in a good mood or whatever, he is always keeping an eye on everything and making sure that his environment is with mm-hmm. within his control or he knows all the variables. I feel like Oliver has lived a lifestyle that forces him to look over his shoulders. Yes. Look behind him, you know, and think about that for a second. That maybe tells us a little more about Oliver that hasn't been spoken yet at this point in the book. But I, I feel like maybe along the way he pissed somebody off. Oh, I think so too. Why would you leave Gascony, you know? He's always looking over his shoulder. He's always looking for a trap. Eh, I mean, you can only live like that for so long without a reason. So something tells me he's got a reason for that. I wonder what that is. I wonder what that. I wonder if we'll ever find out. So, so. that ends the um, the points to bring up. Now, <coughs> questions for Bob. Bob. Bob, it's Random Book Club podcast. You know who we are. Yep. We're best friends. Y- you know us. Yeah, we helped you write your last book. Yeah, uh, Bob. When you write these um, stories, do you have a rough map? And this is kind of also for you, Justin. Do you have a rough map in your head? Or do you just write and make the map later? Uh, you talk about actual locations map? Yeah, because there's so many. When, when we're talking about, oh, this is the Diamond Gate Ferry that goes in between Dunvarna and Eriador, the mainland. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's a question I have for Bob. But I have a question for that for you, Justin, as okay. a writer of several novels. Uh in the fantasy genre and other genres, what do you do? How Do you have a map in your head of like, you know they want to go here, you know they want to go there? What do you do? Uh-oh. You going to drop some real-life knowledge on us? Can I be totally honest with you? Yes. Please. So for our, main, for our mainstay fantasy series, Trinity of Heroes, we have a map that we use, and it's really cool. When I wrote this past uh, book that you and I worked on and mm-hmm. talked about probably for the last eight months or a year even almost, um, I always said to myself, what direction have my characters not traveled yet? West, east, north, or south? And that's the direction they're traveling next. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, you know, and it's like, if you haven't already established something like, let's say, to the east of your main village or main town or your main, you know, city, the potential is unlimited. And, you know, having a map is nice though. So I don't have artistic ability. I I can't like draw worth a crap, but I can tell you, Hey, to the East is X, Y, Z, A, B, C. This is what they are. This is what they made up of. This is, you know, roughly how big they are, but I can't draw it. So that's where I really struggle as a writer sometimes is I can see it and I can play within the realm, but I can't put it, put the actual map on paper. I struggle with that. So do you, do you at least draw like a rough map or do you have a rough idea in your head? I've done that. Yep. Absolutely. It helps. It really helps, especially to remember where your characters have been and where they might return to. And so you don't send them to the same direction for two completely different things. Yeah. That'd be like going to go east to Isle Marvis and then go east again to Hale. What? Wait a minute. <laughs> How does what does that mean? Let's take a look at the map. Hale's Let's on the, the Hale's map. on the west. Isle Marvis is the on the right or on the east. The map is Places wrong. of note. 
Diamond Gate Ferry. The place was Hell called yeah. Diamond Gate for a small diamond-shaped isle, a lump of wet black rock in the middle of the channel, halfway between the shores. The ferries could dock at this halfway point in case they encountered any problems. Luthien says to Oliver as they approach the ferries, if the day is clear, you can see the northern spurs of the Iron Cross from here. So what is he saying? The northern spurs of the Iron Cross, all the way from Diamond Gate. We've established that Dunvarna is 90 miles roughly from... Uh-oh, am I going too deep? Uh, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't a spur be like a point? Yeah, like on, an, like on a mountain. You think of like a spur on a heel is like those little like yep. pointed things that they have on their boots. Yeah, so like, you know, if you see a mountain um, yeah. a view, vista, whatever, mountain nice. scape, um, he's saying to um, Oliver that you can see the spurs of the Iron Cross. So if it's 90 miles from Dunvarna to the Diamond Gate, then we're going to go at least five times that to the Iron Cross. So those mountains got to be high in the Iron Cross. Yeah. Or that island is just really tall. I don't know. But yeah, I, I thought that was a cool little little uh, piece of uh, world building there. And when you look at the map, you can be like, oh, he mentioned... It's like name dropping, you know? When, Yeah, I just, I just like that whenever they add those little things in there. Okay, so that was the only place of note this chapter. Next, fauna. We got one new creature, and it's, it's the door. It's the glowing lichen, right? It's the, it's the things that grow or glow on these things, the dorsal whales. <laughs> Ten-ton man-eaters is what they are, um, which is Jesus, ten tons is 20,000 pounds which is about one and a half times the weight of an elephant, which is 13,000 pounds on average. So that's like an elephant and their baby. That's how big loved, these things are. I loved how they were called 10-ton man-eaters. Something about that name just makes them freaking scary. You got 15 tons. What do you do? Okay. And with that, guys, that is Chapter 7. Chapter 7 of... Was great. The Sword of Bedwear by R.A. Salvatore. Diamond Gate Fairy. Will our heroes survive? It was good. We'll have to tune in next time. So. Well, I mean. You mean what? You think they. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> there's two more books. So <laughs> something's going to happen. Something, they might die. All right. So thank you for joining me, Justin. You guys um, check Justin's stuff out in the description below. You can uh, He's got several books that we've got links to in there. You guys can listen to this podcast. If you don't want to watch it on YouTube, you can listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, or any of your favorite podcasting apps. I'm Dan Van. Justin, it was great to have you. I'm always happy to be here, Dan. Thank you for including me in this yet again. Thank you for listening to... Random Book Club Podcast.